Uh, welcome everyone to our final uh, episode of Tennessee Turf Tuesdays for 2022. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Jim Browson with the University of Tennessee, and we've got a, a special episode here, probably more guests than we've had on, on any uh, Tennessee Turf Tuesday to date. Before we, we get into that, um, just a brief overview. There's always questions about pesticide credits for these sessions and making sure that uh, you get the uh, pesticide credits that you so desire. All of that has been taken care of at registration. So when you registered for today, uh, there were fields that you filled out indicating all of your contact information, what state you would like your pesticide credits in, and your license number. Uh, we have all that now, and we will use that for roster information and submit those to the various departments of agriculture that have awarded uh, our episodes to pesticide certification. So you don't really need to do anything else other than just stay with us for the duration of the hour. Uh, the agencies require uh, sessions to be one hour long in order to get credit. So stay with us, and we'll we'll do our best to wrap up here at 1230 Eastern and, uh, and be on with the rest of our day. For those of you uh, who may be watching this as a recording, uh, the video and audio uh, posts the UT Turfgrass YouTube channel. Uh, the audio posts to uh, the Tennessee Turf Tuesdays podcast feed on Apple. Unfortunately, there are no pesticide credits for any recorded viewings. It's only for those who have joined us live today. Lastly, we do get questions as we go through, and I'm sure I've got a bunch of questions, and my colleagues here at the University of Tennessee are going to have questions for our guests as well. Um, if you have a question and you're listening in with us, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. That allows us to track the questions as they come in. Uh, it will allow us to thread the answers should we need to do that so the answers don't get kind of lost in a longer form conversation. So please use that Q&A button. Uh, if you have a question, and we will do our best to answer it and try to get most of them answered here live uh, while we're on the air. I think that wraps up all the, the particulars in terms of business. Uh, our guest today, I want to welcome uh, Dr. Dave McCall from Virginia Tech, uh, just kind of north of the border, and Dr. Jordan Booth with the United States Golf Association, Golf Association based in Pinehurst, kind of east of the border. I don't know if we want to call this a border war today, gentlemen, but uh, welcome to. Uh, Turf Tuesdays. Thanks for having us on. Uh, certainly uh, excited to be here. Um, I think you said you wanted me to wanted us to give a little bit of an intro. Um, so for the folks that don't know me, uh, I'm the turf grass pathologist at Virginia Tech. Uh, actually, been here for 25 years now in various roles, uh, including back when uh, Dr. Horvath was uh, was my boss for for several years. Um, Makes me feel old. I know it. I, I'm feeling old myself. <laughs> do uh, a lot of work up with both warm season and cool season grasses, uh, putting out trials in Blacksburg, Richmond, and, and basically all around the state. Um, my lab, we do a lot of work with uh, precision turf grass management as well. So don't know if we want to get into any of that today, but those are some of the things that that uh, that we we do here at Virginia Tech. Thanks, Dr. Brosnan. Yeah, I was. Um in Dr. McCall's lab at Virginia Tech for about six years. So prior to that, um, I was a golf course superintendent and, uh, and now I work uh, for the United States Golf Association as an agronomist in the Southeast, so based in Pinehurst. So um, really appreciate uh, you guys including me today. 
Well, thanks to both of you for being here. And, and you know, the, the topic of today's session, I think we titled it something along the lines of winter is coming, little head nod to Game of Thrones or House of Dragon. Um, but in all seriousness, though, you know, we we see particularly in, in warm season grasses some more of our troublesome issues, uh, whether it's on the weed side or the disease side this time of year. And I know in, in my extension program and, and my colleagues here, we really try to advocate folks to use this time wisely, because if you don't really address those issues on the front end, trying to clean them up on the back end is uh, maybe a harder lift. I mean, Jordan, I'll, I'll start with you. I mean, you're on a lot of golf courses in this region and, you know, we've got a cohort of superintendents who listen to these sessions and some lawn care folks too. I mean, what are you seeing in your travels right now? So a lot of golf courses, you know, it get to this time of year and are really in good shape, right? They've tackled a lot of their, you know, kind of maybe early spring um, challenges coming out of winter and then we're able to kind of recover through the through the winter uh, or through the summer rather um but they're starting to think about think about winter especially especially with ultra dork green grass putting greens i feel like we're having a real fall this year at least in a lot of the southeast whereas maybe the two years prior we were um you know we were really warm all the way until christmas so starting to get off color starting to lose color in our bermuda grass you know tees fairways even putting greens so um starting to think about poa control and, you know, putting green management kind of leading into winter, the two big ones that, that I'm seeing out there. Um, and then for our folks managing creeping bent grass, you know, hopefully if summer threw them any curveballs, they're uh, kind of out of the woods now and, and starting to really enjoy that fall weather and get a break. But um, those are kind of the three main buckets that uh, I'm seeing on golf courses right now. So, Yeah, and I'll, I'll follow up. I'm going to share a, uh, a quick picture as a jumping off point here. Um, just kind of maybe a capture of where things are at, um, where things are at, at least climatically in the region. Uh, let's see if I can do this this way. Because you brought up my favorite plant, Jordan. So we got to, uh, we got to talk about it. Um, so what I am sharing here, this is some data, uh, former graduate student, Dallas Taylor, uh, here at the University of Tennessee, did uh, a master's project looking at POA emergence um, in warm season turf grass. So look at the emergence of new POA plants from seed and did a really nice job kind of identifying trigger conditions for when emergence uh, most rapidly changes. Uh, and those conditions were a soil temperature cooler than 66 at a two inch depth for a seven day period. Uh, with about a half an inch of rainfall within that seven day period. And if you you could check both of those boxes uh, in the two years of her work, that's when we saw emergence most rapidly change and, and the POA flush, if you will, um, really happen. And this has been pretty helpful in not only on golf courses, but with lawn care and sports fields too, kind of timing your approaches for control. You know, I, I've advocated that if you're going to use a standalone pre-program, you kind of want to put that out as close to those uh, trigger conditions without going past. Um, so as you get, you know, within your level of comfort to 66, as long as you're on the right side of that, um, that's a, a well-timed pre. 
And then it's become pretty in vogue right now to use mixtures of pre and post chemistry. And, and those need to go out after those conditions are met because you want to have some emerged plants uh, up to take advantage of the post component of the mixture. What's interesting is we have been at the soil temperature parameters for that for a long time, probably for the past 10 to 14 days, but we are bone dry. We have not had really any measurable rainfall in that window, and we have no measurable rainfall uh, here in eastern Tennessee forecasted for at least the next seven days. Um, so it's interesting when you're thinking about that with uh, the dynamics of applications going out. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of one who thinks as soon as we get some rain, we're going to see POA really pop. My question for the pathologists on the call is, is the same moisture effect? You know, I know some of our uh, shoulder season pathogens are temperature triggers. Is there a moisture component to that too? Uh, <clears throat> you're saying to the, to the diseases? Um, certainly um, the, the moisture component, I think, is very important this time of year, right when we do have uh, this, this key window for the pathogens like the yeah, the Ophiosporella that causes spring dead spot and the rhizoctonia causing large patch. Um, having that moisture um, uh, in, in that thatch, in that upper root zone area, I think is very critical uh, for, for actually having pathogen development. So I do think, at least for us in, in Virginia, we're a little bit different than you. We've, we've been fairly uh, wet. We actually um, had, you know, some of uh, Ian's uh, aftermath come through. Um, so for us, we have kind of a, a double whammy of things going. We had a very sharp drop in temperatures. We were right on par for the, the, the five and 10 year average. And then about, oh, it looks like about eight to 10 days ago, we really took a, a tumble. And now our soil temperatures uh, for much of the state are in the low 60s already. So for POA, this would be that key time for, um, for emergence. For, for spring dead spot, I think that pathogen is very active right now. Uh, and, and having that, for us, having the moisture in the soil, I think is, is going to make that environment that much more conducive. And Brandon, yeah. you do a lot of large patch, right? Is it the same true for, for large patch? Yeah, for sure. And and then the, the other piece of that puzzle, too, is to also recognize that, like, while we haven't had a lot of rainfall, uh, anywhere that you're irrigating is going, you're going to have soil moisture there, right? So, you know, in green surrounds and things like that, that's one of the things that I think gets missed sometimes is folks think, oh, it's not raining, so it's dry. It's like, well, in your green surrounds, you're irrigating in those, those areas. If you don't have ins and outs where you can hold off irrigation on the outside, on the collars, then you need to treat that as if you've had rainfall during this period of time, and you're probably getting some emergence, and you need to be thinking about those pre-posts in those areas. And then certainly with large patch, that's the case. I mean, we've already started to see large patch start to go at our research farm. Um, we we don't see that at, uh, we have an offsite location that we do some of our trial work at, and it's actually usually the opposite. It tends to be more severe in the spring. And I think that's largely because it's, it, it's not a heavily irrigated area. And so it's really subject to that soil moisture that's present in the spring. In the fall, it tends to be a lot less severe there. Um, and I just think that's largely an irrigation effect um, whereas at our research farm, we tend to get it really severely in the fall, but we're irrigating uh, pretty consistently through the fall to make sure that we get disease development. So that's certainly an issue. And then 
the other one that I'm seeing quite a bit of, and I think it's it's one of those things that we can see um, from time to time, and especially in these periods where things get dry and then that Bermuda grass really starts slowing down, is a lot of uh, mini ring, uh, not just on ultra dwarf uh, putting surfaces, but also in uh, in walk paths and fairways and things like that, where you have close cut uh, turf that's uh, starting to slow down. If you didn't make an, a fungicide application, you had a pretty good window there in August uh, and late July where it was wet and it was it was hot and that's perfect conditions for Rhizoctonia zea to get going. And then as the grass starts to slow down, you start to see symptoms and kind of wonder what happened. And the time for treatment was back in, in July and August, right? So those are, those are several issues that, yeah, the soil temperature is going to play a role, but certainly moisture plays a big role too. And would you say, you know, for, to you and Dave and you too, Jordan, with the, 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 in, you know, the uptick in play in golf, that something like mini ring, Brandon, that's going to be in kind of higher traffic walk path areas, is that maybe more of a problem now as we've seen more traffic, particularly golf cart traffic on, on golf courses? I mean, Jordan, you can speak to what you've seen in your travels and David, you too. But I, for me, what, what I've noticed in the last several years is that there seems to be more of a more attention given to areas that typically you didn't worry about, right? Like, you know, if you had a little bit of mini ring and a walk path, like it wasn't a big deal. Like it, yeah, you know, it's, it's a little brown in a couple of spots, but it's not that big of a deal. It's in a walk path. It's just not. And, and it seems like with the increase in play, there's also maybe a little bit of an increase in attention to detail and those kinds of things where there's, there's a, you know, because budgets are better, right? Like you've got, a, you've got higher play. Now you've got a little money that you can wear, you know, four five, six years ago, you were trying to cut back and just accepting that, well, that's an area that just gets some, some disease, but it doesn't really affect play. So I'm not going to worry about it. And, and I'm not sure you have to worry about it, to be honest. I mean, depending on the level of expectation is really, you know, where those, you know, where you're going to draw the line. I mean, certainly in green surrounds, uh, on greens, uh, those are places that you probably want to pay a little closer attention to, but but it just seems like in the last handful of years, there seems to be a greater focus on areas that have gotten this, you know, because I've had a couple of superintendents like, oh, yeah, I've seen this for years. I just never knew what it was, but I want to get rid of it. And uh, so it's not like it's a new thing that's just occurring. It's just something that I think folks are paying a little closer attention to because maybe they have, you know, some budget to to spray a fungicide on a fairway or, or whatever that has, has it. Jordan, David. You yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, I've seen symptomology certainly in collars and I think we're getting a lot of, a lot more eyes on the golf course, right? To, to Dr. Horvath's point, you know, we've got, we've got a lot more golfers out there and some people that are maybe around their golf course at times of year where they weren't before. Right. So all summer folks are now maybe at a second home or a second golf course and just seeing things that they didn't see before. So that's been um, something that's been a different challenge. And so golf course superintendents are getting a lot of feedback, um, maybe on areas or times of year that they're not used to. And I personally think we're starting to see on golf courses, we're starting to see more of the signs of traffic 
then, uh, you know, we're kind of paying for those sins of 2020, 2021 of we've had a ton of traffic. We haven't had time to do the work. And uh, it's, it's been a challenge coupled with, in my opinion, the most challenging year weather-wise we've had since, since COVID, you know, came in 2020. So it, I think all these compounding factors have made, um, for different reasons, this, this a real challenging year, kind of coming out of the summer and entering into the fall with no real, you know, I mean, it, it, we're just at a real tipping point with labor issues and weather and, you know, obviously the hurricane, obviously our thoughts are with folks in Southwest Florida, but it's just been a, uh, a, a number of challenges that I think are culminating now. That's something I think you see a lot of, you know, the post COVID is you see it on the sports turf side as well as the golf. Everyone's trying to make up for times lost. Well, during, during COVID and the golf side, golf was up booming in Tennessee. So uh, just that wear and tear, but now that they're having golf outings, cause that was just clubs, like, let's say a private club. They, they still had their maintenance Monday during COVID, but they just had way more rounds. Now that COVID is kind of over, they're having double shotguns because they're trying to make up as much, make as much revenue as they can. And just the, the abuse and the wear and tear, you know, sports facilities are doing that. Stadiums are adding more concerts, more events, thinking you're making more vulnerable, susceptible host for, for all of that. When you, when you look at that for diseases, occurrence, or, or just other pests, for sure. Yeah. And those lines, John. Um, so um, when you brought up the, uh, the athletic fields, and, and something that also I think is kind of unusual that I've seen this year, and I don't know if you've, if, if any of you all have noticed this, but when I think of Kentucky bluegrass, I don't, do not think of Pythium blight. I just do not see those two things being hand in hand. Um, I have had a couple of situations now where we have confirmed foliar Pythium in Kentucky bluegrass on baseball, on soccer fields, uh, particularly those areas that get the, the most wear. Um, so has anybody else seen that? Yep, this, this summer was perfectly a, uh, was, a, was, a, was a really nice conducive uh, weather period for, for Pythium blight on grasses that don't typically get it. I, I, saw, um, I saw a brown patch on our Kentucky bluegrass at our research facility, and that's something that we see what would you say, John, once every four or five years, even yeah. in hot summers, you don't see it very often, but this year was certainly a year, especially in July for us, we were super wet. And, and, uh, and so if, if, if you had Kentucky bluegrass in that kind of environment, that was, that was a pressure cooker for all sorts of things. And it wouldn't surprise me, like you said, typically you don't think of Pythium blight as being an issue on Kentucky bluegrass, but for sure, with those kinds of weather conditions. And we saw it pop up on, on our tall fescue and, and we saw it, you know, pop up on, on uh, bent grass for sure too. Yeah, the tall fescue one, that was a, a learning experience for me as the weeds guy. <laughs> so, I always, like, we always like to poke a little fun at Dr. Brosnan's pathology skills in these. <laughs> One thing I'll, I'll add a little bit here, um, maybe a little bit of empathy for the turf grass managers out there. I, I did an extension visit with Dr. Horvath recently um, and kind of had kind of had my eyes blown away a little. Um, 
you know, we give these talks where we work with people about their programs and what they should be spraying and how they should target, whether it's a weed pest or disease pest. And, you know, we talk about diversity of mode of action groups and mode of action rotation. And, and this is the first time I've ever really sat down and gone through with the golf course superintendent, the actual mechanics of ordering. And um, this was not so simple. <laughs> um, I mean, wouldn't you agree, Brandon? I mean, this 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 was uh, more than I think you or I really bargained for. Oh yeah, it's it's uh, you know I've I've had the opportunity to do it a handful of times with superintendents that I've worked with, and and it is not as simple as it seems when we stand up in front of them at a conference and say, oh, make sure you rotate your modes of action, and you get you know. You know, I like this this product for this you know disease, and you know these three products work well on that disease. And then you start trying to figure out how you're going to make this work with your budget. And 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 it's one of the reasons why when I talk about putting together fungicide programs, I talk about kind of mapping out what you want to do first with paying no attention to this piece, because then it allows you to go back using that kind of as a guideline and find the things that you've identified as things that you want to use and then kind of work your way back into your budget by going, Oh, cause you know, Dr. Brosnan, you can speak to this year. A couple of times you, you recommended something and then did the math on, on how expensive, not, not setting aside the decimal point uh, issue a couple of times. And, and, uh, and was like, wow, you know, I'm not, I, I have a hard time recommending spending that much money on that particular application. Let's try this. Oh, that's much better, right? Like, so I think the the way to build a program is to to map out kind of what you'd like to do, look at, then go back and work into the, into the program, what the cost is going to be. And then if there's something that's too expensive, start looking for alternatives that still fit the goal of what it is that you were trying to apply for that particular issue and find something that fits in the budget. And there are definitely places where, you know, you can find very comparable applications for significantly reduced dollars uh, or take advantage of, you know, one of the company's, you know, rebate programs or incentive programs where they, they are looking to move a particular product and you can take advantage of that to, to gain a, a little more bang for your buck. Um, but it is not simple at all. I mean, you know, the, the other thing that we saw, Jim, was, you know, you've got all of these sheets and, you know, oh, well, that product is PBI. All right, find the PBI sheet, like, uh, you know, and then, okay, let, let's find the bear sheet. And and you, it, you have to, you know, you're thumbing through all these different sheets trying to find, you know, a particular product on that list like you have in this slide. And it's it's not terribly easy to do. It's definitely a time you know, it's not hard to understand why, you know, some managers might just talk to their couple of salespeople that they trust and go, hey, look, you know, put put something together for me and 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 maximize my savings. Go and turn them loose. And, you know, with salespeople that have experience in the field, they they kind of have an understanding of what that person's trying to do if they have a good relationship. And it's it's not hard to understand why some folks do that because all of that stuff that you have on the screen there, it's its not terribly easy to wade through all of that and understand what it is you're doing. Yeah, I mean, you, you've got to, you've got to go through and not, you've got to understand rates, 
right? And, and, and what's the target rate you want to use, the container size of the product that you're interested in using, how many acres that container size would treat at a, at a given rate, the, the total footprint of the golf course or sports field or whatnot, size-wise, um, that you want to treat. Over. Never mind, never mind the economics of it, right? That's just deciding how much volume of material you need. Right. Overage. I mean, how much yeah. how much it's going to take to fill the spray lines in your sprayer, how much, you know, you're you're probably going to have a glug or two that doesn't hit the target as you're filling the tank. I mean, it there's all sorts of you know places where you, you have to factor in kind of like what you're you might have say three acres of greens, but you're you you need to plan for slightly more than three acres of greens worth of product to make sure that you can cover those three acres of greens. And it's it's uh it it is not a simple process for sure. Yeah, and, and and Dave, you know, you mentioned earlier about you do work with kind of precision turf grass management. I would imagine if one was to try to take a precision approach to what they were doing, it would make, you know. The, the mechanics of, of ordering, it would add another variable, right? Absolutely. It can, it can make things very complicated, uh, but there are tons of opportunities when you start looking at precision applications. Well, and it's not hard to see why, why folks save a fairly significant amount of money on their, on their product costs, because just those couple of things that we just talked about, like overage and things like that, where if you have a precision sprayer where you can apply directly to that specific area you're you're automatically going to save you know a uh a, a decent percentage of of product right there right. That... Uh, absolutely um we actually we're just uh we've been working with a course here in virginia uh this year where we are trying to help out with their spring dead spot using the the precision guided applications and you know in my opinion, the best product for spring dead spot is Kabuto, um, you know, among several other things, but it's pretty darn expensive. And, and certainly a lot of people aren't able to spray, you know, 40 acres or so. Um, right. And when we went through and mapped actually how much of the area truly needed to be treated with that premium product for, for spring dead spot, we were at 13%. So we had an 87% savings. And you know, they only needed to target those areas. Now, does that mean the other everything else doesn't get treated? No. What we're doing is recommending, you know, blanket sprays of tebuconazole, um, which yeah, may work, may not. Um, it, it sometimes it's effective, um, but when you're talking, you know, 18, 20 bucks an acre, or, or maybe a little bit more than that, it's right. quite different than four hundred dollars an acre. Um, so, so our approach, what we're trying to tell more people to do. You know, even if it's not with a GPS sprayer, um, it's pay close attention to where those troublesome areas are. Um, you know, maybe you've got a few approaches that that get hit particularly bad, or a couple of low lying areas, or maybe you've got some sand cap tee boxes that, you know, are that they basically dry out faster than everything else, and they get hit with spring dead spot a lot harder. Maybe those are the areas where you go in and make your more expensive application. And then you supplement with uh, with something else in the other areas. Yeah, for sure. To that to that point, um, one of the things that I know, I have a, a couple of friends that are superintendents that have uh, worked with uh, folks more on the ag side to build 
their precision spray equipment? Are there places in the Southeast or folks in the Southeast that are doing that same thing versus ordering like maybe an OEM, you know, straight precision sprayer from one of the big, you know, iron manufacturers? Oh, are you saying are people coming in and retrofitting? Yeah, like retrofitting and or and or, you know, even if it's a relatively new sprayer, just ordering the regular sprayer and then retrofitting in, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a RTK GPS and 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 uh, and all the, you know, the, the nozzle control, auto steer, all those kinds of things that, you know, ultrasonic boom height and things like that that can help you know, improve a precision application. Are, are there folks in the Southeast that are, that are using the, you know, somebody that's more, maybe more on the ag side with, because they, they adopted this technology a long time before we started adopting technology. You know, I know that there are people out there. Um, I, I, don't, I can't remember the specific names right now, but there are several people who are coming in and retrofitting sprayers. Um, I've seen mixed results with that. I, I've worked with a couple of people who, you know, they didn't pay for that uh, that RTK upgrade, which is the, the real-time kinematic. That's the very precise GPS. And they're like, you know what? You know, eight to 10 feet is good enough. And then they're wondering why they're spraying their bunkers instead of their greens in, in some cases. And and um, <laughs> that's just something you got to be careful with. Um, yeah, see, it seems like it's good enough, but it's not. Yeah, exactly. And And to me, you know, depending on what route you take, that upgrade to get go to the RTK, whether it's from the original manufacturer or from, you know, somebody coming in to retrofit, you know, maybe 10 or 12 grand or something like that, you're going to make that up in no time. You're going to make that up uh, in probably a year, year and a half. And in fact, Jordan, uh, when with your master's work, uh, take you way back to, to when you were doing that, do you remember any of the metrics of of how much time it takes to, to make up your money not to put you on the spot or yeah i do remember <laughs> i mean just just for spring dead spot if that's the only thing you used it for it was a three-year roi so if you were only using like the example you just gave dave of like a, a much more effective fungicide for spring dead spot compared to tebiconazole um, it was a three-year return on investment and we're seeing more and more um, adoption of of these technologies throughout the southeast you know, if you were to get a precision guided sprayer without RTK, you know, it'd be like buying a Ferrari with a four cylinder engine. It just, you know, wouldn't make a lot of sense. But, you know, I think if we're, you know, I, and I've seen it both ways to, to answer your question, Dr. Horvath, I've seen more and more recently um, buying straight from Toro or John Deere, if they can get that equipment. Whereas I think the early adopters, right, in our industry were more retrofitting spray equipment because it just, you know, the stuff from the, from the bigger manufacturers was not um, as readily available and folks still go both ways. You know, they still, there's some, some guys that, that have found solutions, uh, with, with maybe an, an ag based company that's going to save them some money or they're just more comfortable with that technology, really just regional. So. Gotcha. Um, yeah. It, it just seems to me like that's one of the things that I think we're, we're at somewhat of a tipping point with, um, with our technology in terms of our maintenance side of things is that, We've got a labor issue that needs to be ad addressed, right? So, so certainly more autonomous or, um, you know, uh, precision type pieces of equipment can be helpful. But then on the flip side of it, you know, there's also, uh, you know, 
the, you know, I teach this history and impact of turf grass class where we go through and talk about kind of the historical underpinnings of how we've managed turf. And one of the, you know, there's a couple of, we just got done reading this, uh, you know, 1650s text on how to lay sod. And the only thing that the guy misses is green side up. I mean, it's basically the same method today as it is, as it was in 1650. And, and then you look at, you know, a place that has labor challenges where, you know, buying some giant rough mower that's $100,000 for that rough mower and you've got one operator and it's, you know, versus putting it on, you know, putting a giant, you know, uh, multiple deck rotary mower on the back of a tractor and hooking it up to the PTO and being able to have that same operator cut a lot more acres for a fraction of the price is something that needs to be considered. And like you said, like the return on the investment to me is the, the way the, the, the turf manager is able to make the justification to the folks that are providing the budget is being able to show like, look, we're going to save, you know, and we can demonstrate that savings so that you are, you know, getting the return on investment for this precision piece of equipment. But then there's other pieces of equipment where we don't need more, you know, fancy bells and whistles, bells and whistles. We need it to be able to have one operator mow a large area of, of grass reasonably well for a fairly low price. And, and, uh, and that's a huge, huge part of the puzzle, right? Absolutely. I mean, the practicality of your example, we see all the time. You know, you can buy one piece of equipment, a rough mower, self-contained unit for X number of thousands of dollars, or for half that, you can buy a tractor and a pull buying unit. Um, and the same applies to kind of what we started with here with EOP. You know, these early order programs are critical for superintendents to save their club's money in the same breath as we get to, you know, the end of a lot of clubs fiscal years right now, you know, guys will say, well, you know, I, I understand that I need to spray this, but this is what I have on the shelf. You know, what, what can I work with? There's this balance of you're right. It's, it's, you know, we need to be responsible with the budgets, but at the end of the day, it's about that return on the investment in the, in the golf experience and the golf product, as far as the golf course example. So um, I think careful consideration needs to be made with these early order programs and what you know you're going to use. I think the pathologists on this call would agree that, you know, products like, um, you know, Segway, go ahead and early order it, right? You want that in the barn. Um, but make sure that you're early ordering products that you know you're going to use because a lot of times we get to the end of the year, budgets are lean and golf course superintendents are saying, well, I have this, should I spray it? And it's like, well, that may not be your most effective product, right? I mean, so um, I, I think the EOP is a tricky, uh, tricky one that you bring up, Dr. Brosnan, and, and how to manage that and how to go through that process. Well, and, and we actually both had uh, not just the experience where we were together, but an, another experience that we talked about where, you know, one of the, th where we were suggesting to the person, like, look, think about what you're going to do next fall, for example, like with POA control, right? So rather than, rather than be, be thinking about like, oh, now I got to get my POA control product in because I got to go spray POA now because I didn't early order it, like take advantage of the savings, figure out what you're going to rotate to next year, order it and get it on the shelf now for next fall. So that, like you said, Jordan, when, when the dollars are starting to be a little limited, you've got something on the shelf that you can go to and get really good control out of. And then when early order comes by next year, think about what you're going to rotate for the following fall, right? Like, 
So not be thinking almost a year in advance for some of those things. But then to your point, for sure, like I had an experience where we basically looked at like, where could we maximize rebate savings and, and get things that we know are going to be useful season long, right? And said, okay, let's just go with that. And we can build what we want to do next year with what we have on the shelf. And there might be one or two things that you need to supplement with, but let's just make sure you've got plenty of chlorothalonil on, on the shelf. Let's make sure you've got plenty of this SDHI, this QOI, and, and some Pythium products. And then we'll build the program from what you've got on the shelf as we go through based on the weather, right? Like rather than thinking I've got to have this many of this and this many of that and, and, and run into, you know, situations where either you have to go out and buy something at say agency price, you know, full, full freight, or, uh, you know, run into a situation where that product isn't the best product for, you know, what it is that you want to control. Right. And, and for those, you know, for that approach, and I'm sure you agree with this, Brandon, like to be successful, it, it requires communication on the superintendent's part to be communicating with the Greens Committee chairman and club leadership about, you know, how they're using those resources and, and how they're going to steward them in the forthcoming year. And also kind of taking an ownership of, of the program, right? You know, you mentioned earlier, like leaning on a salesperson to develop a program for you where that approach might be a little more successful in that it's the superintendent taking ownership of their program and just buying the tools that they want to have to do that, which is, which is really neat. Yeah, absolutely. That's a huge piece of the puzzle. It's, and, and, and the other thing is, you know, most, most of those, you know, you know, board members or whatever, they, they don't know, they don't, they don't have an understanding of, of, you know, let's face it, the vast majority of golfers, right, and the vast majority of people that that play and recreate on turf have no understanding of the level of science and, you know, technical prowess that is required to deliver a high quality, whether it's a golf course or athletic field, you know, or even a park campus, right, like a, a you know, a, a, a parks and rec, you know, set of fields, like, to, to deliver something that is high quality, there's a fairly significant amount of technical prowess and understanding and knowledge required to do that. It's not, oh, well, you just fertilize and mow just like I do my yard. That's that's not going to get it done. And, and they just don't know. So then that's where it's really important on that professional, you know, those of you here on this call to be able to communicate with your board, with your your, your supervisors with the folks and talk about things like return on investment. A lot of those folks are in business. They understand return on investment. They understand, you know, we're investing these dollars here to reap the benefits there. They understand those kinds of concepts, but they don't understand the, the kind of the nitty gritty of the, you know, the, the specific, you know, widgets that you're plugging in to, to meet those needs. And that's where your communication is really important. I think John, you know, we talk about that in class all the time, right? Like how important communication is. 100%. Well, and, and you know, in the ROI piece, thank Jordan, you brought this up and Dave, you too, from a, a product savings, right? Like you're going to be using less product. And I think, you know, that's a case. If one wanted to make a case for a, a GPS sprayer, that's one of the things you could put in the argument, right? Is that I'd be using less chemistry and putting less uh, chemical into the environment. 
I think another, you know, case to be made for that is, is the placement of that chemistry, right? It's, it's putting it exactly where you want it to go. Um, and that could be true in the lawn care situation, right? Where we don't want to have drift and movement of herbicide from one property to another. And, you know, where I kind of see it the most in my, my golf extension is with applications that go on to putting greens, where that superintendent is then going to take that application out into the collar. And it's funny how the, the Venn diagrams of all this stuff overlap, right? You know, you know, if you're using fungicides on a bent grass putting green in the summertime to maximize the quality of that surface, well, they go into the collar, they're going to keep any POA that might be present in that collar there all year long, which is then going to make your control of POA in that space in the fall harder than if there was just new plants germinating from seed. I mean, it's are, it's are really you saying are you saying if you can control diseases on annual bluegrass, it might survive? I, I believe that's correct. There, there's actually new research, Dr. Horvath. I believe you've you've read it. <laughs> Shocking. Yeah. No. It's it, it's interesting. The the case that one could use to to invest in that sort of apple spray. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a huge use case, right? Like you can be more precise with your applications, your product savings, all of those kinds of pieces. But then you also have the you know the in in my mind the the uh, the the potential uh, exists right like a lot of that's dependent on the individual practitioner but if you can get comfortable with the fact that you've accurately mapped the areas you want sprayed then you as the professional at the high dollar salary piece don't have to be the person sitting on the sprayer right that that can now be handed off to someone at a, at a line worker level, because they're not the one operating the sprayer. The, the map is operating the sprayer and making the decision to turn on, turn off and doing those kinds of things. And you can be a lot more confident that the application is gonna go down accurately uh, without you having to be right there. Now that might take some you know trust building of seeing the sprayer work and making sure that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, but that that's another piece of the puzzle, right? Like that you can transfer that application now to someone that's that, and that frees you up to do something else that might be more useful to the organization. Are are there data out there, gentlemen, on the adoption of GPS sprayers compared to a standard piece? Like, do we have any numbers on what the adoption rate is? Uh, we've got some. I, I would say pretty preliminary data, some some small little nuggets here and there. I don't think I could really apply it to the the national scale, but um, you know we did one survey with uh, the Department of Ag Econ here at Virginia Tech, uh, where we reached out to um, turf grass professionals from all segments of the industry, and to my surprise, we were at about eighteen percent of the respondents saying that they actually had um, uh, had uh, GPS spraying equipment. Um, that was quite a bit higher than what I was expecting. Uh, but I do know that more and more people are becoming more comfortable with it. I will say that some of the other data we looked at is, you know, are you worried about missing applications? Are you worried about losing your job if you, if you do this and, and get something wrong? And I want to say, I uh, don't have the exact numbers in front, but it was like 60 to 65% of the people actually said they are concerned about losing their job if they do not, you know, 
hit the target with where they need to go with these applications. So until we can get people more, more confident in what we're doing, it's just not going to take off. So you know, we, yeah. we're trying to get some of those key players to, um, you know, people who are willing to, to take the risk. And even if it's on a smaller scale, okay, maybe you're not spraying all 18 holes or maybe you're not spraying all of your athletic fields, but you're going to cover these two or three fields or these, you know, this, you know, these four holes of your course just to gain the, the, um, the experience and, and, and gain the confidence. I think those are the things that are going to be very important. Yeah. And Dr. I, I, uh, go ahead, Jordan. Uh, Dr. Horvath nailed it as far as, you know, we're such a shortage of skilled labor kind of beneath the leadership group, if that's the superintendent and others. And that's where I've seen them adopted is just on a need basis, right? It's just a practical solution to a labor issue uh, because we've had maybe accuracy problems with applications, right? Too much overlap or, or not the correct application being made. And of course the superintendent or, you know, grounds director or whoever still is going to have to be involved in the mixing. But as these things continue to get better and, and more precise, I, I think we're seeing more and more folks um, making these applications right, wrong, or indifferent, but it's, it's helping ensure that accuracy. And, and that's, that's why I've seen a lot of these things being purchased at golf courses because they need to ensure that the, that the uh, accuracy is there. So it's, it's going to, like most things, it's going to have to be a practical adoption. And then now that the price point of the sprayer without GPS is getting close enough to the sprayer with GPS, it's much easier for clubs to kind of make that, uh, make that jump. So usually like Dr. Horvath alluded to, it's just a practical thing. It's a need because of the labor challenges. Well, and it, and, and that just feeds right into the point that I was going to make there is that, you know, to David's you know, point that there are, there aren't, there aren't very many innovation pieces that I can think of in the world that we mostly operate in where you don't have the opportunity to really witness and dig into what that technology is, how it works, how is it going to be useful to me and my operation, et cetera, et cetera, before you make that purchasing decision. This is kind of an exception, right? Because there's not that many out there. It's hard to find somebody. I mean, two in 10, right? That's your data. So two in 10 people have one. And then the, you know, out of those two, are they both really open about sharing, you know, what they're doing and how they're doing? Maybe, maybe not. Some of them might be, but that's going to be a smaller subset of that 20%. So you've got a fairly small group of people that are going to be willing to share and expose others to that technology. And there's not, it's not the same thing as, is, you know, you know, me or, or, or David or Jim coming out to a conference and saying, well, I've been working with this product for 10 years, you know, from development through to market, and this is how it works. This is where it works best. This is how it's going to work for you. This is, you know, where its application is, you know, and then there's a demo program where they, they get it out into the hands of end users. And then those folks comment and give feedback and talk about how it's useful. And then, it, then the product gets launched with all of that in place. Whereas some of this precision stuff has been kind of happening as, as it, it gets adopted. We've got, you know, the classic early adopters. I mean, I have a friend of mine that's super into this. He has a, a, a couple of fairway units that 
he's the 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 last thing he's waiting for is an independent suspension and he can you know he can spray cool season fairways in a couple of hours at like 15 miles an hour like he's you know flying a plane right and it's it's uh but but he's one of those early adopters and and you're you're not going to find it's just hard to find how you get exposed to this technology so that you can get comfortable with it before you make that purchasing decision. And so there's a bit of a leap of faith. And that's, I think, to your point, David, a, a really good reason why, especially in this industry, where your job is riding on the results that you provide, it's, it's, that's, a, that's a big sell. Oh, trust me, it's going to work kind of thing. The scars cut deep, if you will. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, and it I think it takes that, yeah, next okay. generation of superintendents, right? Maybe if you work for someone that had it and you go out on your own, so it just takes time. But you know, like the like the handheld moisture meter, right? There's some technologies that come to the market and people are skeptical, and now I would say those are at nine out of ten golf courses, right? So um, it'll it'll get there. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Jordan. I mean, I can remember, you know, when I you know started out of graduate school, but it, those weren't very common. There was a lot of pocket knives that, that were, you know, in place of that moisture meter. And now it's almost kind of part of the superintendent's utility vehicle, if you will. Yeah, for sure. And, and Jordan, to that point uh, with the moisture meters, uh, how, how often in your travels are you finding uh, folks that are using other pieces of, you know, whatever you want to call it, handheld technology to measure, you know, pieces and parts of of what we would define as quality playing surfaces so things like uh like a, a true firm or uh you know some measure of firmness some measure of smoothness like how 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 much do you see that uh in your travels yeah i mean a lot it's it's something that is we're fine-tuning you know um kind of the way we measure quality of putting greens um, specifically that's, that's where we see those tools used the most. So, um, I was at a golf course yesterday, you know, as, as a new superintendent who had taken over for a veteran superintendent and his first purchase on property was two, uh, handheld moisture meters. And then the second purchase, uh, was a true firm. So I think, I think as we're getting more data driven, um, you know, at the USGA, we're, we're launching a, a smart golf ball to measure, you know, trueness, smoothness. Um, and firmness on top of green speed. I know I showed that to you, Dr. Horvath, last year, but that's one of the things I, I kind of say, you know, maybe the worst thing the USGA did was come out with the scent meter, um, but also, you know, we, we need other ways, other metrics to define quality of these cut putting surfaces. So no longer chasing speed, we're chasing consistency. And that's where other things like firmness, trueness, smoothness really come into play. Um, and so I think, I think it's certainly a trend that, I'm, that we're seeing in our travels with, with data collection. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think you're, we're going to see, uh, you know, one of the things that concerns me, not just as a, as a scientist, but then as a golfer, and then also, you know, I'm, I, I've had a real education this last year being on a board at a golf club and understanding, you know, some of the things that get thought about uh, back to that point of not really fully understanding the, the technical prowess that's required, you know, if we get too hung up on speed and everybody gets to the point where they want, you know, tournament level speeds on their surfaces, we're just going to end up with a bunch of flat, boring 
saucer shaped greens because in order to have enough hole locations to move traffic around for daily play, that's really all you can provide. You can't provide any big, interesting contours or things like that when you start getting up in speed. So it's going to be really important for us to have other metrics to define what a quality putting surface is beyond just uh, how fast the ball rolls over a flat level surface, right? And that's one thing we're learning about a lot right now because the value of the stint meter is in consistency. You know, it, it can be, in the, if anything, in the wrong hands, it can be used incorrectly, but the value is in consistency. And like, 100%. One thing we've learned with uh, Pinehurst Resort here where I live in Pinehurst, North Carolina, you know, course two famously, you know, has hosted many U.S. Opens and other championships, but they've actually lowered their daily green speed in order to provide a better golf experience and um, and a better pace of play and more interesting hole locations, to your point. So I think as we collect more and more of this data and we have a better understanding of how to use it, we're going to learn things like that. And golfer satisfaction, we found actually to be better with a better, you know, improved pace of play and more consistent um, green speed. So, you know, sometimes I think the most important, you know, most important data collection we can use is just a five gallon bucket to look at clipping collection, right? So there's all these things that we can be doing that's just kind of, you know, common sense at times, but using that information and you nailed it earlier, you talk about, you know, speak the language to your stakeholders, whether it be Uh, at your sports turf field or, you know, your landscaping or your golf course, but speak, speak those uh, same languages. And a lot of time that's with data. Yeah. Brandon and and Jordan, it gets to, uh, you know, what Brandon said earlier, communication, communication is key. Growing the grass and doing all these things should be the easiest part of the job. It's how effectively are you communicating what you're doing and why you're doing it and talking about these green speeds, it gets right to, you know, the Mike Morris method. It's been, he did, 15, 20 years ago at Crystal Downs, an old Alistair McKenzie golf course where communicating, surveying, engaging your membership, letting them get some ownership of what their greens should be in terms of a consistency uniformity, not a speed that's too fast, but one that's that's for the for the betterment of the game that you know three quarters or 78% of the membership agrees to, because it's going to be a bell curve. It's going to be some that want it too fast, some want it too slow. How do you make the majority of the 78% of your members happy? Yep, absolutely. I was just going to make the point to Jordan's uh, point about consistency too. You know, the, the other thing that that allows you to do is to look at your, your complexes independently of each other, right? Like you might have a green on your, on your golf course uh, that is fairly contoured. Maybe that doesn't need to be as fast as one of the flatter surfaces on your on your golf course and maybe there's some management practices that you can engage in to provide the appearance of the speed being similar but it doesn't need to be the exact same speed from one green to the next in those situations because the contour the elevation change the gradient of those slopes is different right like heavily, you have a heavily very a good example yeah. of that too. I've worked with a golf course that's had heavy shade on one green yeah. and simply raising the mowing height on that green has kept that green more consistent with the other greens. So having to dedicate a one mower to a green. Well, and I, and I was just going to say, John, I think your communication piece is well taken and goes beyond just green speed, right? I mean, I think we're approaching a place where a lot of clubs are considering some sort of regrassing 
whether it's the, the you know a, a large scale uh, complete regrassing or just strategic areas of a property. And I think the most successful renovations I have seen have involved planting kind of the candidate grasses on the property and then engaging the, the club leadership and the membership in getting feedback on what they think is the right grass for the property, right? Mm -hmm. So then it becomes a decision that it's the club's decision rather than the superintendent's decision made solely alone in a vacuum. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, we're coming in uh, pretty close to 1230. I've had up on the screen here uh, our GCSAA CEU uh, code. Uh, this has nothing to do with pesticide for anybody listening. This is only for our golf course superintendents with us today. Uh, your event approval code is here. And if you are watching this recorded, you want to make sure that when you submit this to GCSAA, you submit the original uh, event date of October 4th. And Jim, we must have done a good job again because there's no Q&A. So yeah, everyone's sleeping. <laughs> it, I mean, it is it's getting up on lunchtime, I guess. With two minutes left, any uh, Tyler, Tyler's too young to get this reference, but any parting shots for the, the rest of our guests here? <laughs> we got nothing. All right. Um, so but I will say, as I said in the opening, um, you know, this was our final episode of the year. And I'd like to thank Jordan and Dave for, uh, for joining us, um, you know, and one of the things we like to do is, is refresh this program uh, every year. So if you have ideas for topics or guests, um, please send them our way. Uh, Jordan and Dave are here because their names were brought forward as uh, speakers who would be of interest to the audience. So uh, we will do our best to go out and get who you'd like to hear from on these sessions. Uh, and we'll continue to make them available in 2023. Uh, certainly can change um, also the deliverable. You know, we, we're on Apple Podcasts now uh, per listener request. Uh, request came forward at the end of 2021 to make the audio available on Apple Podcasts uh, and went forward and did that. So uh, on behalf of all my colleagues here, I thank you for, for staying with us for this episode and for this season of Tennessee Turf Tuesdays. And we will uh, see you again next year. <laughs>